I want to begin by mentioning something that you see every day, but you do not necessarily think about it every day. And I'm going to imagine that you're probably much more familiar with these things than you think that they are, uh, than you are. And, and that is logos or symbols, logos. And you see them everywhere. And you probably are much more familiar with them than what you think that you are. And I can remember the first time I even uh, thought about a logo. And I had never really given much thought to logos before. But uh, I was down here in Lakeland. You know that I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. And I was down here in Lakeland. And I was a student at Southeastern University. I was a full-time student. And there was a church. I, I started out when I first got here working, uh, you know, going to school full-time, working part-time at Publis. And then, you know, I was hired by this church uh, to be their part-time youth pastor. And so I was going to class and then being youth pastor and this youth group is growing and we really don't have a name for it. We really don't have a logo for it. And so I'm just thinking because, you know, I don't know a whole lot. I'm only about 22, maybe, maybe 22, uh, three, but I think I'm about 22 and I don't know much about logos or naming groups or any of that, but I know that youth group have names and youth group have logos. And so I did not want our, lo uh, <coughs> excuse me, our youth group did not have a logo. And so I'm like, all right, well, we probably need to put something together here. And I, I really didn't know how to name a youth group. And I started thinking a little bit and I thought, well, Jesus is Georgia Bulldogs, but that didn't sound spiritual enough. And so I'm thinking, well, it probably needs to be something different than that. And so I brought together a couple of my friends. And so we started thinking about names and tossing around names and, and uh, talking around about logos and the design of logos and what it could look and what could be really neat, what would be cool and how we'd use it on publications and shirts and, and all of this. And, and yet, you know, we have a lot of passion, a lot of energy, but we just don't have a lot of great creativity. Um, and, and so we came up with a plan and the plan turned out to be this plan. Uh, a lot of, you know, my dear friend, he speaks for me here quite often and, and that is Bob Crosby. And so Bob and Pam Crosby were leading this fantastic youth group up in New York. And so we couldn't come up with a great youth group name on our own. So we just chose that we would steal their name and we figured Jesus would be okay with that. You know, it's for a youth group and we stole their name. And Jeff, I don't know, I don't think we stole their, stole their logo, but we at least stole their name, and it was out of the Bible, Psalm 91.2, so we took the name, and so that was really the only time that I'd ever really thought about uh, logos before. And I, I didn't know Bob, by the way, but his brother was my very best friend in college. Now, how many of you know that we live in a world of logos? In fact, very bright people uh, work long hours and it's been lots of creative energy design and look that they hope is going to be well-remembered. Like if we design this, we want it to be such that people are going to remember it. And when people devise a logo or a statement or a symbol, they hope that people are going to feel emotionally connected to it. In fact, they hope that people are going to have a little bit of a buy into that, that they're going to, you know, have sort of a heart appeal to it. And they're going to say, well, you know what? I want to buy something that that particular company is selling. I want to buy something that has that logo. I want to be a part of that. And, and I want to, I like the logo. I like, and so they hope that we will identify with it and sort of buy into it, sort of feel emotionally connected to it. And so a lot of people, again, work really, really hard to come up with some great logos. And we could, we could take a lot of time, we're not, to just go through some different logos. I'm going to limit it to, to three. And these are three 
um, that, and I asked the guys, I don't even, I know what the logo looks like. I don't know what it's going to look like on the screen, so I'm going to see it the first time with you. But, but here's, here's one logo, and take a look at this one. How many of you, any of you seen that one? You know that logo, the famous swoosh, and you, you, know, you know the name. Just do it, all right? Just do it. How about this logo? Take a look at this one. You've seen this logo everywhere, the little triangular Mercedes-Benz. Their, their theme is, is the best or nothing. Anytime you see that on the front of a car, you know what kind of car that is. You may, not, may not be familiar with the, the, the slogan, but you're familiar with the logo of it. And I think a lot of you know this next logo. Take a look. Have you ever seen this one? <laughs> it sort of spells it out. And uh, eat more chicken. That's God's will, I believe. Uh, Chick-fil-A. And you're familiar. I know that logo. I see that logo a little bit every week. And I'm very, very familiar with it. But you're more. And we could just keep putting them uh, one after the other up on the screen. And, um, you know, you'd know. You, I couldn't even put the symbol or the name. And, and you could see the logo. And you could say, yeah, that's right. That's Nike. That's, you know, that's Chick-fil-A. That's Mercedes. That's Chevy. That's you know, just go, that's Under Armour, that's, and just go right down the list, and you'll recognize all these logos. So you're a lot more familiar with them than what you actually think that you are. But maybe you've never really thought much about this, that for 2,000 years now, Christianity has had a logo. Christianity has had a symbol, and is really not a clever symbol when you think about it. It's really not that sophisticated at all. It's not even catchy, but it is the most widely recognized symbol of our faith, and it is quite possibly the most widely distinguished symbol of all time and in the whole world. And what I want you to do, and you're already familiar, you're already ahead of me because you saw the title of today's talk. I want you to take a look again at what is our corporate logo on Christianity. There it is right there. That's our logo. And you just look at that and that tells you everything. That is the most pronounced logo or symbol uh, that there's ever been in regards to Christianity, maybe the most famous one in the world. Our logo, if you're a follower of Jesus, is actually, when you look at it, it's two pieces of wood. It's all it is. It's not sophisticated. It's not clever. It is two pieces of wood connected together on which common criminals were executed. And when you look at that cross, and guys, maybe you just put it up again for just a moment, and you just look at that, and you just think, you know, on that symbol, on that logo, you have pinned your hopes and your dreams, both for now and eternity. Just the reality that you're, you're hoping, you're believing with everything that is within you, that, that the Holy Spirit who Jesus sent after the ascension is with you, with us right now. In fact, the Bible says the Holy Spirit comes and fills us. You pin your future on that. You're believing that one day when you die, that you're going to spend eternity with the one who spilled blood on that cross. And we're going to be talking about that next week, by the way, in Easter Sunday. How, how can you, this is why it's so important that you bring your family, your friends, your neighbors, people that you work with, because we're going to be talking about how can you know for certain you're going to heaven? A lot of people don't. But we have pinned our hopes and our dreams, both now and for eternity. Just looking at a cross, it is not a sign of victory, is it? You don't look at that. You don't get all animated about it. It is not a sign of victory. When you think about what happened on that cross, it is not a symbol of victory, but of death. It is not a symbol of status. It is a symbol of humiliation. It is not a sign of triumph, as most logos would be. It is actually a sign of great loss. 
And I I was thinking a lot about that while I've been working on this talk for Palm Sunday. When you consider this reality, and just think about it for just a moment, you take an all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere present God who could have at his disposal anything he wanted to symbolize this great movement of his And yet it was in the heart of God and it was from the love of God that he chose that a cross would be the symbol, the logo of his movement. And in case you haven't thought a lot about the cross recently, and sometimes we don't think nearly enough about it, on this Palm Sunday, I want you to become increasingly clear about it. And I just want to raise the question with you and talk about it for a few moments before we're done. Why the cross? Why the cross? And in doing that, I'm going to sort of break it out categorically into three sections, sort of the pain of the cross and, and the, the, the power of the cross, the pain that is uh, represented in the cross. We'll talk about that. I want to talk to you for a little while, just a little while about the power that is manifest therein. And, and then as we wrap up the people of the cross, but next Sunday is Easter Sunday and it's going to, it's going to be an amazing day. And I, I sincerely hope that you're bringing everybody you possibly can with you and invite them to meet you uh, in the lobby, uh, whatever it takes and that they can sit with you, whatever it takes. So you get the word, you get those invite cards out and you bring them with you. And it's going to be an amazing day. But having said all of that, I must tell you, there is no Easter without a cross. There's just not. And so let me talk for just a few moments about the pain of the cross and, and doing that to just mention to you just a brief word, a brief word about the history of the crucifixion. You see, it was in the ancient world that Romans, but not just exclusively Romans, but there were others who were specialists at executing people. They were pros at executing people. And there were plenty of ways in that day, plenty of cheap ways to be able to execute people. If you just wanted to be over in a moment, you really didn't want to have much bother to it. You could just say, all right, here's what we'll do. We'll just, we'll just run a sword through them and we'll execute them. That happened many, many times in the ancient days. We'll just run a sword through them. It's quick, it's easy, it's inexpensive, it's done. Or we'll stone somebody, or we will burn their body. And so there were a lot of different ways that these professional executors could go about their job. But to crucify somebody is entirely different. Maybe you've never thought about this in contrasting ways. To crucify somebody was much more involved, and it was a lot more costly. If you were going to crucify somebody, and we know this by now, most of you do, that Jesus was not the only person that was crucified. There were many people crucified before Jesus and many people crucified after Jesus. In fact, when we read the Gospels, we know at the very time that Jesus was crucified, there were also two people who were crucified right alongside of him. So crucifixion was nothing new by the time of Jesus. But you think about it. A crucifixion was a lot more involved. If there was going to be a crucifixion, there would have to be at least four soldiers with uh, one centurion who would sort of lead it, who would sort of manage the affairs. And so it was a lot more involved. It wasn't just running a sword through somebody. It was, you know, there were people now involved and it took a lot more time. You see, the duration of a crucifixion could be many, many, many hours. In fact, a crucifixion, if somebody did not die, they could actually, they could actually uh, stay on the cross for days even. And I'll talk about it in just a while uh, later why Jesus didn't last as long as a lot of people did. 
but somebody would be there on the cross for hours. So I took, you know, more people, at least four soldiers, a centurion, a lot more time that would elapse between the time that they put somebody. In fact, many times when they wanted to hurry the process, have you ever read the scriptures and talk about that they went to the crosses and they were going to break the legs of those who, and you wonder, well, why would they, they're already going to die. Why would they break their legs? And it was to, it was to expediate uh, the death on the cross. And, and maybe I'll have time to talk about it, but the way somebody was, they would have to raise up in order to be able to draw in a breath, in order to be able to inhale uh, oxygen, and then they would they'd have to move again. And if they wanted to just stop their ability to sort of like move up and down on the cross to be able to breathe, to keep breathing, lest they suffocate, and then a lot of times to hurry up the death, they'd just break their legs and they couldn't push off anymore. And they would just basically suffocate. They couldn't breathe. They couldn't take in enough oxygen. So, you know, a crucifixion not only took more people, it actually took a lot more time. So much more money, a lot of time, definitely more effort involved. So why would anybody even bother with the crucifixion? Again, maybe you've never thought about this. Why would they crucify people? And I'll tell you why. And it was primarily for two reasons, two reasons. The reasons that crucifixion, more time, more money, more people, why that would happen would be a couple of reasons. Number one, it would be if you wanted to torture the person, if you wanted them to go through excruciating pain, if you wanted them to go through lots of agony. I mean, you could run a sword through them and it would be over in a second, but not a crucifixion. And so you'd sort of drag out the, the agony of what would happen. Uh, so, you know, that, that's one of the reasons why. The second reason would be to escalate the humiliation of the person being crucified. To escalate the humiliation of the person. Because what would happen, and you think right now about the busiest streets in, in Lakeland or Polk County, and we could all come up with some names that, well, I think that's the busiest street, a lot of busy intersections there. Uh, they wanted to humiliate the person. So what would happen? The person being crucified, they would actually go ahead and take after their beating. And I'll say a word about that in a moment. If they happen to have been beaten ahead of time, uh, whether or not they would, the crossbeam would be placed upon them and they would be led through some of the busiest streets of that particular town, the busiest if possible, because they wanted a lot of attention to be drawn. They wanted there to be like mass humiliation. So lots of people would, would line the streets and they'd see people uh, going to their place of crucifixion and they'd be carrying this crossbeam and everybody knew what it was. And, and Rome actually wanted to send out a message that anybody that messes with Rome, you're probably going to get something like this as well. So it's very public. It was very humiliating. In fact, the soldiers would walk out in front of the person being crucified, and one of the soldiers would actually carry a sign, and plastered on the sign would be the crime that had been committed by this person, whatever it was. And they would just walk, one of the soldiers, through the streets with the sign. All the people would see it, other soldiers behind them, and then the person being crucified. And again, not only was there going to be a lot of torture involved, there were massive amounts of humiliation that would you know, precede what was going to happen on the cross. Writers, ancient writers have talked about that crucifixion was such a cruel form of death that it was actually illegal to be used on Roman citizens. So if you lived in Rome, you may be punished in other ways. You may be incarcerated, but you would never be crucified because it was just too cruel. Only foreigners. Crucifixion, think about this. Crucifixion was reserved for foreigners and for slaves. And then it begs the question, well, why Jesus? And what did Jesus experience? 
You see, in many cases, as I mentioned just a moment ago, the accused would be severely beaten before that they would ever be crucified. They would be beaten first, and that was certainly accurate with Jesus. We know that. We, we've read about everything that he went through and the flogging that he went through. You've heard people talk about the cat of nine tails. You've heard that expression. Maybe you didn't even understood what that was, and a lot of you know it, but some of you may not. That would actually, the instrument of torture that would be used in a beating prior to a crucifixion would many times be this, this, this weaponry. It would be like these long leather straps and uh, intertwined would be pieces of, uh, of bone or, or pieces of, of rock or something like that that would be, would be sharpened. And they would take that and they would, they would beat this person. And in fact, if this, these metal objects or bone or stone or whatever was in it would just like rip into the flesh of the person to such a degree that if the centurion did not monitor what was happening very, very closely, the criminal could actually bleed out before they were ever crucified. And they would carry this crossbeam, as I mentioned, after the beating. A spike would be placed, and I asked one of the guys, and it's, it's, this is so much more sophisticated than what it would actually be like, and, and I just ask a guy, well, you know what, you know, sort of dimensionally, what might it be? And, and you just think about these spikes. Generally, three of them would be taken, and, and, and I just hold this, and I just try to even imagine, and it's, it's, it's sobering, and it's just really sickening when you, when you think about it, and, and how that, you know, a person's left hand would be fastened to the crossbeam, and, and that spike would be driven in just below the hand into the wrist area and then the right hand and then the feet would be stacked oftentimes upon one another and and then a spike would be driven through the feet and and the torture would commence and and that person would be left when you read about the crucifixion with some flex as I mentioned to you the ability to breathe because if you really wanted to carry out the punishment you wanted them to suffer a while and you wanted them to breathe so you'd give a little bit of flex so that the person could pull themselves up a little bit to draw in air and then and sort of sink down to exhale and just, you know, keep that process. And then you start thinking about it. I was thinking about this a whole lot, working on this talk. Is anybody like me, if you ever get a new item of clothing, like a shirt or something like that, and the tag, you ever, and the tag, how many of you, the tag just alone would just drive you crazy? If you've done like me, it's just driving me crazy. So what I do, I take it off and I cut the tag out. And because it's just irritating me, and I just think something so minor, microscopic is that. And, and then you think about a person like Jesus who had been beaten to the point. Uh, you know, it said that Jesus, um, really, they came around to break his legs, and they didn't have to because he had already died. And that was because many believe, many scholars believe that because of the very intense beating that Jesus ever took before he went to the cross, that he already had tremendous amounts of blood loss already. And then you think about that. That person who was nailed to a cross, having been beaten in this rough-hewn sort of piece of wood that they were nailed to, and, and they have to push up. That's why there was flex, you know, a little bit in their arms and their feet so they could, they could you know, sort of push up and draw on them. And you think about the person's back up and down the cross and pulling their hands and feet and just the movement of that and, and all the nerves and everything that was involved in that. And, and again, it was a means of, it could have happened quicker, but they wanted to torture the victim. They wanted to humiliate the victim, and they hoped that the people crowding the streets would just follow to the scene because, you know, everybody likes a little drama, and then they could just sort of stand around and see it all play out and taunt and humiliate. We know a lot of that was happening when Jesus, if you're the son of God, why don't you come down off the cross, save us? You think you can save us? Come down from the cross right now and save us and save yourself and just ridicule after ridicule. If you're really the son of just, you know, even one of the criminals, you know, taunting Jesus from the cross and all this is going on, it's painful and it's humiliating. 
But I want you to think about something that maybe you've not thought about for some time, and that is that Jesus was experiencing much more than just physical agony. Did you know that Jesus was suffering spiritually as well? And you say, well, Jeff, where in the world would you even come up with that? But he was. You read the scriptures. You read the gospels. And you understand why Jesus was not just suffering in his physical body, but why he was going through, again, theologians talk about this spiritual suffering that Jesus was going through. Because you see, in that moment, when Jesus was upon the cross, you know this, that Jesus took your sin upon himself, and he took my sin. And Jesus actually took the sin of the whole world upon himself. In those moments, he took the whole, the weight of the whole world upon himself. Prior to this, Jesus had only known. He had only known perfect joy and perfect peace. Prior to this time, he had only known perfect oneness with his father. But now his words, you listen and you read his words. Now his words reflect a sense of feeling lonely and disconnected from the father. I want you to look at this verse up on the screen. Take a look at it with me. What Jesus says in Matthew 27, verse 46. This is while he's on the cross. He said, read it with me, everybody. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why is Jesus saying that? Because he's feeling forsaken by his father in that moment. You know, there, there may have been times in your life where you have felt distant from God. There have, may have been these occasions in your life where you have felt, felt estranged from God and it, it was not because God had moved. It was not because God had abandoned you. It's not because God had given up on you. It's not because God had forsaken you. It's just that you knew what you were doing in your life, and you had separated yourself from God, and so you felt disconnected from God. But even in those moments when you may have felt incredibly disconnected from God, here's something I want to remind you of. You have never been and you never will be forsaken by God. How many of you know that even professional sinners, if you could say it that way, even professional sinners are not forsaken by God. Yet forsaken is what Jesus experiences while hanging on the cross. And you think about it, why? He's perfect. He's sinless. He's without any fault at all. And in those moments, he is feeling the weight of the whole world. Every, not just one sin, but the collective sin of every one of us in this room and everybody in this world and everybody that has lived before and every person that will follow us, every sin to such a degree that God is so righteous and God is so holy and God is so pure that God can't even in those moments look upon his own son. And, and the Bible says he turns... And looks away. And, and in those moments, Jesus is feeling abject forsakenness. And Jesus has done nothing wrong. I want you to look at what Jesus said to some of his disciples while in the Garden of Gethsemane, just prior to his crucifixion. He knew what was awaiting him. He had prophesied about it. He had talked about it. And just prior to, this is what he says. You'll see it on the screen. Matthew 26, 38. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. What is Jesus going through? He's knowing what's going to happen. This, this, my friend, is the pain of the cross. The pain, the humiliation, the physical pain, the spiritual suffering, everything that Jesus went through. Now, I want to take just a few moments, and I will not spend as much time here, but I want to take, take just a few moments to talk to you about the power of the cross, the power of the cross. 
Had you been an onlooker on that day, uh, and you probably would not have wanted to be, but had you been an onlooker at that time, the time of Jesus' crucifixion, you would have recognized that there was something remarkably different about this one. Maybe you had, you know, grew up in a region where people were crucified from time to time, and you had seen two or three or four or so of these by now. But if you happen to gather around the drama, the commotion of it all, and you were just wondering what was going on, and maybe you had even heard about Jesus a little bit, and you were just wondering, well, you know, this one that we've heard is a miracle worker, this one who claims to be the son of God. Now they're crucifying him and, and along with him, a couple of common criminals. And maybe you had seen some of these crucifixions before, but now you gather for this one because this one has recognition, name recognition. Now they're crucifying Jesus. And had you been an onlooker for something like that and it just gathered around, you would have noticed that there was something so different. You would have noticed that, you know, although Jesus was uh, crucified in the daytime, how many of you remember reading in the scriptures that all of a sudden there was like this sudden darkness that swept the land? I can remember being seated in a middle school uh, class, and uh, I was already uh, a little bit, you know, uh, paranoid about bad weather because just a short time before then, uh, some of you heard me tell the story about a trip that we were making from Georgia to Florida to visit my uncle and aunt and, and, and cousin, and there was a tornado that happened, and it got just eerily dark, and we could hear the tornado, and we could not yet see it, yet when we got on up ahead, we could see where this tornado had, had you know, turned over an 18-wheeler and just cut a path through the middle of these woods. And so, you know, I knew what that darkness was like, and just sort of, as a kid, it just struck fear in my heart. Now, I'm carrying this around as a middle schooler, and I can remember sitting in class and the class was on sort of an outside wall and I can remember it was the middle of the day and looking outside and saying oh man it is incredibly dark and I could feel my heart racing a little bit just wondering is this gonna be another and it was just it was daytime but it was dark this is how it was when Jesus was crucified just out of nowhere it just seemed that there was this massive darkness that just swept over that that area and it was sort of symbolic of the darkness of everything that was occurring in that moment and uh, you'd know that it was something different because in those moments it said that when Jesus breathed his last, it says that the veil of the temple was torn uh, from top to bottom. You think about that, that it separated people from the Holy of Holies. It was perceived that God was just beyond the curtain and nobody had access into the Holy of Holies. Nobody could just access the presence of God. But it is torn in those moments when Jesus breathed his last from top to bottom. And this is the power of access. Because now Jesus is saying, anybody can come to me. Anybody. It's like you now have access. You don't need somebody to go for you. You don't have to designate a high priest or somebody else to go into the holy place. You now have access to me. You've got problems, bring them to me. You've got fears, you've got, you know, you bring them to me. You need forgiveness, you bring that to me. Whatever it is you need in your life. You have trouble, you bring it to me. And there's power manifested in the cross because when the veil was rent, it just said, all right, this is the power of access. You can now approach me. But at the cross, it was also the power of forgiveness. And how many of you are glad that Jesus still forgives sin? The fact that Jesus, the innocent son of God, would take upon himself our sin. Look at Galatians 3.13. It says this. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How did he do that? By becoming a curse for us. So there's the power of access. There's the power of forgiveness. At the cross, there is also the power of, 
of God over evil and over, over the dominion of Satan. Paul tells us the, this verse is not on the screen, but in Colossians 2.15, you may want to look at that sometime later. Colossians 2.15, Paul is talking about this, and he's talking about the cross, and he is saying that through the cross, listen to his language, that Jesus disarmed the powers and the authorities of Satan. That when Jesus died on the cross, that he disarmed the powers and the authorities of Satan and his dominion. And then Paul goes on to say, listen to the language now, and I'll make a correlation here. And then it says, and Jesus made a public spectacle of them. And it's almost like Jesus is saying, I'll flip the script. You know, you were going to, you were going to humiliate me and you did. And you were going to make a spectacle of me. You did. You beat me. I, I walked through the streets carrying the cross beam as far as I could take it until somebody else had to carry it because Jesus was too weak to continue to carry it. And, and, and Jesus is saying, and Paul is declaring that when Jesus died on the cross, that what God actually did through Jesus is he made a public spectacle of Satan and the dominion of cohorts who work in collaboration with him. You think about that. So there's not only pain associated with the cross, there's power. There's the power of access. There's the power of forgiveness. There's the power over evil that transpires. Now, as we close, what about the people of the cross? What about the people of the cross? People around this world and in this nation, throughout our state, in our communities, People in our neighborhoods where all of us live, in the workplace where we're at, even in our own family. How many of you know that not everybody perceives the cross in the same way? How many of you know that? Not everybody views Jesus the same way. Not even in our own family. Some of our families are the cross. Now, and I'll give you a verse that you'll see this in just a moment. But before I get to that, um, you know, as you saw the logo, uh, Chick-fil-A and I'm, I'm there quite a lot on, in the morning, but I can't go on Sunday morning. And so I meet the teams here early on Sunday mornings. Then I take my notes, the talk that I've been working on, and I go, I've got this little fast food place that I go to, and I just sit there, and I just sort of pound, pound it into my brain so I can, with God's help, deliver it to you. And I, I sit at the same place, same table, and for the longest time I've sat at that place, and, and a table very near my table is this this uh, older guy, and I've got to know him a little bit, and he's one of those guys that, you know, when you first meet him, you're like, do I even say hi to this guy or not? He just has that sort of demeanor about him. How many of you know what I'm talking about? He's busy with his stuff, his newspaper, his coffee, and so like, okay, he doesn't look like he wasn't, uh, wants to be disturbed, and he doesn't look like he's wanting to be real gregarious and social in this moment. So for the first several weeks, I just would nod or whatever. And then I struck up a conversation with him and he figured out, I forget how he figured out that I'm a, I'm a pastor. And so he had, he had asked me a couple of questions and then he'd go back to his newspaper. And so, uh, you know, we have this conversation. I'd ask him, how are you doing? Strike up just, to, you know, just to try to build some sort of relational bridge with him. How's the weather? Did you have a good week? Something like that. Well, I'm, of course, I'm in there this morning and he's seated there and he's had to move from a different table because because somebody who's at the table that he owned, you know, has gotten there ahead of him. So he's not real happy about it. And I'm thinking, well, this is bad morning to talk about Easter, but I'm going to do it anyhow. I mean, Easter, it's Easter, it's Super Bowl time. And so uh, I, I walked up and I said, how are you doing? You have a good week? He said, fine, I had a good week. And then I looked at him, I said, you know, next week is Easter, don't you? And he said, I wondered when you were going to hit me up. And I said, well, I am. It's Easter next week. 
And I think you ought to come to my church next Sunday for Easter. Everybody ought to be in church on Easter. And he looked at me and he said, no way. And then I'm, I, my spiritual gift is not discernment. But when he looked at me and said, no, what, no way, I, I thought to myself, he's not fired up about, I, I don't have discernment, but it, something told me he's not fired up about coming next week. <laughs> and, and then I said, really? And he's like, all that stuff, this is what he says. And I, again, I, I like the guy. I've built a, a relational bridge with him, and we talk every single week. But he said, no way. He said, all that stuff is hocus pocus. And I looked back at him. And I said, you think so? And again, sermon told me, all right, don't keep pressing this guy. So I just turned back around and said, all right. Started looking at my notes again. I heard him speaking. I turned back around to him. And he said, but I guess I do need to come and see you in action since I talk to you every week. <laughs> I'm like, I'll be waiting on you. you I'll, I'll be waiting on you. Not everybody sees Christianity the way you do. But God loves the whole world. And God's not willing that anybody would perish. And that's why God allowed his own son to go to the cross. Look at this verse on the screen, 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It doesn't even make sense. People who are perishing, people who do not know God, people that are far from God, look at the cross and just say, that's ridiculous. It's all, it's all just make-believe. It's all just hocus-pocus hocus pocus but then look at the rest of the verse but to us who are being saved it is what it's the power of God as we wrap up this morning I want to remind us that Jesus invites us all to become people of the cross you see we live in a world that wants Easter but nobody wants a cross but Jesus said I want you to be a people of the cross in fact, this is what, look at this verse. Guys, are going to put the last one and we're, going, we're done. Look at this last verse. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and do what? Take up his cross. That's what Jesus said. You can't have Easter. We can't celebrate next Sunday without thinking soberly about Good Friday. And Jesus said, I want you to take up your cross, the symbol, the logo of love, and sacrifice, and humiliation, and devotion, and obedience. And this is not for the weak at heart. You know, it just blows me away. From time to time, I hear people say something like this. Oh, Christianity is just, Christianity is just for people who are weak. And I say, oh, man, then you don't understand Christianity. Christianity is just a crutch for people who are emotionally unstable. Then I'm like, then you don't understand Christianity. Because it takes a real man, it takes a real woman to say, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to get up every day and I'm going to pick up my cross and I'm going to follow Jesus. And my life is not going to be about me. It's going to be following the one who took spikes in his hands and in his feet for me. It's about the one who took a beating for me. And I will take up my cross because Jesus invites me to. And I will love him and I will obey him and I will serve him and I will follow him to my dying day. Take up your cross, Jesus said. Deny yourself. The pain, the power, the people of the cross. Would you stand with me for a closing prayer? Here's what I love about this moment with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, that you don't have to wait till Easter 
to give your life to Jesus Christ. I was thinking about it recently. Jeff, what do you want to spend the rest of your life doing? And it's this. I was thinking about it. What's your goal? What's your, what's your personal mission? And as quickly as I asked myself that question, I was able to answer it. Between now and my dying day, I want to help to point as many people as possible into heaven. And if you're here today and you're not in right relationship with God, maybe you feel alone. Maybe you feel disconnected from God. Maybe you feel estranged from God. Well, if you don't feel close to God, let me just tell you, it's not because God has moved. You've moved. And God loves you. And God looks at your life and He says, whatever you've done, how often you've done it, who you've done it with, it can be forgiven. You can find mercy. You can find grace. You can find forgiveness. Whatever you've done, whatever you said, whatever you've done, whatever you thought, you can come to me and I will forgive you cross represents the power of forgiveness. Maybe today you'd love to know that your sins were forgiven. Maybe today you'd just do what a lot of men and women throughout, throughout the ages have done. Who said, I'm going to take up my cross and I will follow Jesus. While heads are bowed and eyes are closed, if you're not yet a Christian, if you're not yet had your sins forgiven because you've not confessed them and repented of them and you want to become a follower of Jesus even today, you want to pick up a cross. It's not an easy path. But you'll have Jesus with you every step of the way. And you say, I want to become a Christian today. Would you just lift your hand as high as you possibly can so I can see it in this dark theater? And I want to pray with you. Just lift it up and keep it up for just a moment so I can see it. I see your hand and I see your hand. I saw your hand right over here. Just give me a moment. I'm just looking around. Saw your hand right back there. Anybody else? Just lift your hand real high. Keep it up for just a moment. Let me see it. Thank you so much. You can put it down right there where you're standing. Just say this. Jesus, forgive me. Pray it in your heart, your mind. Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Come into my life. I want to pick up a cross. I know that the symbol of Christianity is a cross where you died for me. And I thank you for that. Now come into my life. Make me a brand new person. I want to carry the cross every day. And I know there's going to be some days I'll stumble. There'll be some days when I'll fall, but I will not stay down. I'll get back up and I'll follow you. I'll follow you till I breathe my last breath and wake up on the other side in heaven. So Jesus, thank you for receiving me. Come into my life even now in Jesus' name. And everybody said, would you put your hands together and let's give Jesus some praise. Can we do that? I love you, everybody. See you next week. Stop by. Get those Easter invite cards.